Today's reading is from Second Nature, A Gardener's Education by Michael Pollan. Emerson wrote that nature always wears the colors of spirit, by which he meant that we don't see nature plain, only through a screen of human tropes. So in our eyes, spring becomes youth, trees, truth, and even the humble ant becomes a big-hearted soldier. And certainly when we look at roses and see aristocrats, old ladies, and Girl Scouts, or symbols of love and purity, we are projecting human categories onto them, saddling them with the burden of our metaphors. But is there any other way to look at nature? Thoreau thought there was. He plumbed Walden Pond in winter in order to relieve nature of this precisely human burden to recover the long lost bottom of Walden Pond from the local legends that it was bottomless. Thoreau was confident he could distinguish between nature, the pond which he determined had a depth of exactly 102 feet, and culture, the stories people told about its bottomless. The transcendentalists looked to nature as a cure for culture. But before it can exert its sanative influence, we have first to scrape off the crust of culture that has formed over it. This neat segregation of nature and culture gets complicated when you get to garden plants such as the rose, which perhaps begins to explain why Thoreau preferred swamps to gardens. For the rose not only wears the colors of our spirit, it contains them. Roses have been cultivated for so long, crossed and recrossed, to reflect our ideals, that it is by now impossible to separate their nature from our culture. That doesn't necessarily mean we are better off with swamps. It is too late in the day, there are simply too many of us now, to follow Thoreau into the woods, to look to nature to somehow cure or undo culture. As important as it is to have swamps, today it is probably more important to learn how to mingle our art with nature in ways that culminate in a rose, in forms of human creation that satisfy culture without offending nature. The habit of bluntly opposing nature and culture has only gotten us into trouble and we won't work ourselves free of this trouble until we have developed a more complicated and supple sense of how we fit into nature. I do not know what that sense might be, but I suspect that the rose, with its long, quirky history of give and take with man, can tutor us as well as, if not better than, Thoreau's unsullied swamp. The garden is a rich metaphor, so much so that when I decided to make garden and gardening the theme for this week's year-long chalice camp, and I typed garden into the library database, more picture books with garden in the title came up than I could check out with one library card all at once. There are so many kinds of gardens in our imaginations. The Garden of Eden, of course, also the secret garden, the magical garden, the fairy garden, and as we saw today, the curious garden. 
Why such a fascination with gardens? In his book, Second Nature, A Gardener's Education, author Michael Pollan reflects on the notion of the garden as a third place, neither completely nature nor completely culture, but instead the place where human action within nature can be explored. Pollan's description of the gardener fits well with my definition of what it is to be a human and in right relationship. Quote, the gardener in nature is that most artificial of creatures, a civilized human being. In control of their appetites, solicitous of nature, self-conscious and responsible, mindful of the past and the future, and at ease with the fundamental ambiguity of their predicament, which is that though they live in nature, they are no longer strictly of nature. Further, they know that neither their success nor their failure in this place is ordained. Nature is apparently indifferent to their fate, and this leaves them free, indeed obliges them, to make their own way as best they can. This part wild, part cultured, or controlled metaphor is used to describe parenting in developmental psychologist Alison Gopnitz's book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. Here, she describes two philosophies of parenting using those two metaphors. The carpenter sets out to build something specific, a clear outcome, and cuts and bends the materials to get the desired results. The gardener has a plan in mind too, but mostly can only nurture and protect and provide what is needed and then hope for the best. And in the process, they are often wonderfully surprised. Gopnik writes, quote, the good gardener works to create fertile soil that can sustain a whole ecosystem of different plants with different strengths and beauties, and with different weaknesses and difficulties too. Unlike a good chair, a good garden is constantly changing as it adapts to the changing circumstances of the weather and the seasons. And in the long run, that kind of varied, flexible, complex, dynamic systems will be more robust and adaptable than the most carefully tended hothouse bloom." End quote. I find the garden to be a really good metaphor for the work that I do here as a religious educator and as director of the Faith Development Ministries. But the gardener framework has been far from dominant in our thinking about spiritual and faith development. In my experience, most people, when they share their stories and descriptions with me, are likely to describe a journey and favor metaphors taken from heroic quests more than that of humble dirt and soil and sun and time. But before we go further with models or concepts or metaphors for the concepts of faith development, it may be useful to pause and unpack the word faith. It's quite possible that among us gathered here today, there are multiple understandings of what this word means, and many may find the word off-putting. So what am I talking about when I talk about faith development or faith formation? 
While some see faith as belief in something beyond reason, there are other ways of thinking about faith. Sharon DeLaws Parks, author of Big Questions, Worthy Dreams, mentoring young adults in their search for meaning, purpose, and faith, writes that faith is, quote, more adequately recognized as the activity of seeking and discovering meaning in the most comprehensive dimensions of our experience. To be human is to dwell in faith, to dwell in the sense one makes out of life, what seems ultimately true and dependable about self, world, and cosmos. To be human is to dwell in faith and to make meaning, to find out for yourself what seems ultimately true and dependable about self, world, and cosmos. At every stage of human life and development, we are still dwelling in faith and making meaning, although the ways that we do that may be very different depending on the age and stage we are in. So let's return to the concept of faith development stages. That journey mindset can be seen in the foundational faith development theory work of James Fowler. Fowler is required study for religious educators, and this model is often shown as a stair step of six stages, going from early childhood, stage one, when faith is about feelings, to middle childhood, stage two, when faith is about stories and facts and things that you can learn and be taught, to adolescence and stage three, when faith is about belonging and buy-in to the faith of family and friends to youth and young adulthood and stage four, when faith is about asking questions and discovering what is true for oneself. Some religious educators have proposed that we remember these first four stages as caught, taught, bought, and then sought. <laughs> then Fowler's next stage takes us into mature adulthood and stage five, when Faith is about living with paradox and finding the resiliency of imperfections and mystery. And then somehow there's a jump to stage six, peace with all things and ultimate enlightenment. What is wrong with this model? <laughs> Aren't we each on our own unique journey? Doesn't this go well with our fourth of our seven Unitarian Universalist principles, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning? Well, one critique of this model is that it presents one well-worn path. Religious educator Joy Berry of the Foz Collaborative at Meadville Lombard Theological School describes this as the conveyor belt of faith development. The problem with that kind of thinking is that you really can't just get on at one end and expect to passively arrive at the other. In fact, there is nothing inevitable about faith development, and many adults may in fact be at stage three or four still, and may never reach the stage five of typical middle age, to say nothing of the huge leap to stage six. The other problem I have with this model is that although relationships are referenced from the loving adults that provide the feeling of safety and love for stage one toddlers, to the peer group whose norms and beliefs have to be bought into for adolescence to find the belonging faith of stage three. Ultimately, the central journey is described as that of one individual, moving along an individual faith journey, 
possibly affected by others along the way, but in the end, still developing as an individual. Joy Berry critiqued this notion at this year's gathering of the Liberal Religious Educators Association when she said, but what kind of creature develops anything alone? We develop our capacity to be human in the context of community. Indeed, humans have always developed in the context of community. In fact, humans evolved in community with each other, with care and education provided to the young by a whole network of people, the parents, grandparents, and those genetically invested, but also those without genetic and investment or relation to the children. This is a fairly unusual pattern of behavior which biologist and primate scholar Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy has identified and described as cooperative breeding or alloparenting. Alloparenting is not terribly common among even our closest primate relatives, although lemurs also engage in this behavior. Hurdy argues that lemurs and humans face some of the same environmental challenges, and that alloparenting arose very early in the course of human evolution, as we moved from the trees to the savannas and also started giving birth to larger and larger babies with longer and longer periods of dependency. Cooperative breeding becomes necessary to carry heavy children long distances, and in turn, cooperative breeding makes longer childhoods possible. The part of all of this that I find particularly fascinating is that we cannot really separate these strands of co-evolution as learners and as caregivers. Long childhoods necessitated that humans organize themselves to be able to provide a network of care to the young. Being cared for and educated by a whole community allowed for long periods of experimentation and learning and the innovation of new ideas and practices. Childhood and community evolved together, much as the garden and the gardener develop together. Perhaps the story of Eden just has it all backwards. We didn't start off innocent in a garden and then get cast into the wilderness of labor and pain. No, instead, as we grew into who we are, we simultaneously grew the garden around ourselves. Remember the caught, taught, bought, and sought model of faith development? Joy Berry has proposed a different notion of faith formation, which she dubs ROT, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. She chose this because it rhymes, of course, but the word makes sense. Rot is an archaic way of saying worked, especially meaning worked or hammered into shape metals. Barry says that this is a dynamic view of faith formation, one that you have to work at and hammer away at, and then you're going to go back to the forge of pain and life experience and work it again. This is a faith that is shaped by struggle, work, and pain, as well as by beauty, vision, and love. This is no linear conveyor belt, and you will likely never be done shaping and then reshaping yourself, always done in community with others. 
Rather than a journey, this is a practice, a slow honing of an art form as you shape and are shaped, held in the container of a committed covenantal community. Or to just switch metaphors on you midstream, in this model, each of us is both the garden and the gardener, each growing and also tending to and stewarding the growing things. In this model, the fourth of the UU7 principles, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning is a challenge, a challenge to remember and to keep asking ourselves, to whom and to what are we responsible? We are not only free, but also responsible. We are like Michael Pollan's gardener, in control of his appetites, solicitous of nature, self-conscious and responsible, mindful of the past and the future. If our practice is one of relational and covenantal faith development, if all are both the garden and the gardener, we also need to turn away from the hierarchical notion that adult ways and norms are inherently better and recognize the gifts that children and youth are bringing to the community. Children and youth want to be seen and valued, respected and listened to as integral parts of our community. Their value to this community is not as our future. They are right here, right now. They are part of this community's present. They deserve to be seen and acknowledged as such. And honestly, I believe if we want more young people in our congregation and in our denomination, the best way to do it is to start valuing and listening to the young people who are already here. Our community is greatly enriched by them. All of this past week, I've had the pleasure of leading Chalice Camp each day for 17 wonderful kids aged 5 to 10 with the help of adult volunteers, young adult and teen staff, and teen and tween helpers. The beauty of Camp Week is that the kids can truly make themselves at home here in ways we often can't accommodate on Sunday mornings. Playing hide and seek throughout the whole building, playing dodgeball in the classrooms, exploring the grounds, and generally having a grand time being young and energetic and loud. <laughs> but that is not the only way that children can be present. They also bring the gifts of deep feeling, fearless honesty and vulnerability, unashamed jump for joy or cry with frustration expressions of our humanity. Our children can remind us of how to care for one another, of the need to keep fairness and compassion in the forefront of our actions, and how to just let loose and truly marvel at the wonder of our universe. Our teens and young adults are also bringing great gifts to our community. The idealism and convictions of our youth and young adults can push us in radical ways, keeping us from stagnating into our comfort zones. While conversations will not always be comfortable or easy, when they get going, they can go deep and push at patterns of hypocrisy and compromise. And the folks who have learned to live with compromise and take the long view, the elders of our community, also have much to contribute in this shared work of faith development within relationship. These voices can often bring caution and also more sense of how to organize for the long haul. 
perspectives born of lived experience of pain and disappointment give compassion and care the strength to carry each other across the hard parts of life. The garden of our community is enriched by these different perspectives from different ages. But the garden needs many gardeners. Like it or not, every single one of you is a teacher of our faith. Everything we do and everything we don't do teaches something. Everything that we say and everything that we don't say also teaches something. And always, always, we are also learning. Because like it or not, every single one of us is still in process, still developing, still growing in faith and in spirit. It's a terrible mistake for anyone of any age to ever sit back and think that they are done, a finished product, the end result of the conveyor belt. You are not done. You are still growing. You may need some pruning, or you might need some fertilizer. You may just need some gentle, loving sunshine. But for sure, you're still growing. This is a learning community. And we do have many amazing volunteers who I deeply appreciate, but we are always needing more adults who recognize their responsibility to engage in the work of learning, particularly the work of learning through relationship with our young children and our youth. Each year that I have been here, it has felt a bit harder to find enough volunteers for our religious education programs. This is a shame for both the children and youth and also a missed opportunity for the adults. It's a missed opportunity because the adult faith development process is enriched through relationship with people of different ages and stages. We evolved as humans in the context of providing care for the young, not just the young we are genetically related to, but the young of our entire community. This community is the perfect place to practice being human in this way. A church is another third place, like Michael Pollan's garden. It is neither our entirely private sphere of home and family, nor the entirely public sphere of work and politics. A church or faith community is instead a bit of both, both a home and a commons shared with others who are different and not related to us. Our OUUC community is like a garden. There is soil where we can set our roots and be nurtured. There is the water of new ideas and stimulating discussion and deep wellsprings of a tradition to draw upon. And there is the steady sunlight of inspiration and spiritual practice. But our community needs many gardeners. May we each, even as we are nurtured to growth, also find our hands in the work. And in this way, may we grow as humans dwelling in faith. So may it be.